Music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. I'm Chris Hawkins, here in the shadow of the giant Lovell telescope, which is mounted on what looks like a massive ferris wheel. The birds are singing, the sheep are beating. It's equally peaceful as it is awe-inspiring. I'm here with Professor Teresa Anderson, one of the festival's founding directors, to explore the Blue Dot vision the challenges of the last few years and the exciting return to Jodrell Bank here this July. Teresa's an award-winning physicist and director of Jodrell Bank Centre for Engagement, which she founded in 2010, alongside Professor Tim O'Brien, who happens to be Teresa's husband. They spearheaded the campaign to make Jodrell Bank a UNESCO World Heritage Site, an accolade it received in 2019. Welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast here at Jodrell Bank in the heart of Cheshire's countryside. Teresa, we're here at Jodrell Bank, the home of Blue Dot. It feels very different without all of the bands, without the music, without the talks, and of course, without the audience. Yeah, yeah. It's always really strange, actually. Everybody goes away after Blue Dot and we think, what just happened? You know, because it returns to this lovely rural, green, quiet area. And during Blue Dot, you know, it's really buzzing and the site's full of people. We're really looking forward to having everybody back this year. It's just going to be fantastic. On a normal day, what happens here at Jodrell Bank? So during the week, we are heaving with school kids. We're speaking now before they arrive, thankfully. Otherwise, there'll be a lot of squeaking going on. And um, at weekends, it's generally people who are coming, you know, with families or for days out. See our fantastic new gallery, which just opened a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, we've got the, the best thing that you always need when you go out anywhere. Fantastic coffee and lovely cake. <laughs> <laughs> Very important. Uh, tell me about the telescope. It, it is, I said, awe-inspiring. And I'm yeah. guessing that however many years you've been here for, you don't ever lose sight of that. And it's the second biggest radio telescope in the world, am I right? It is, it is. And you, you really, it's, you're so right. I don't think any of us get tired of it, to be honest. You know, every day it looks different and every day you think, what's it looking at? What's it picking up from which bit of the cosmos, you know? And it's, it's just a fascinating sight to work at. I think we're all really proud of it. People say when they come here, and this is a bit weird, people say when they come here, it's a bit like going to the seaside. And, you know, you sit and you look out of the ocean and you all your troubles fall into perspective. And here you're like sitting on the shores of the universe, you know, you're looking out across the cosmos. It's absolutely fantastic. And certainly, you know, if the ocean puts your life in perspective, the universe can help as well. For those that have never seen it, it's like it's built out of Meccano. Yeah. And, and it's like a massive satellite dish. It is actually quite like a massive satellite dish. It's, very, it's the same principle in terms of science and engineering in that it picks up radio waves, which is what your satellite dish does. It's a little bit bigger because it's 76 metres across and then it focuses the radio waves at a receiver, which is what your satellite dish does. And this particular telescope, the receiver, is the big, big tower in the middle. And at the top of the tower is the... Um, all of the kit that picks up the signals that have travelled for millions of millions of years at speed of light, and that's all cooled to near absolute zero. So it's a bit weird, you know, we're in the middle of a field in Cheshire and we've got something that's cooled to the temperature of outer space. Can I ask a question? You mentioned the kids being here yeah, and how many kids visit the site. Can I ask a question that one of them might ask? What's it for? <laughs> Yes, good question. The thing is, there's no such thing as a stupid question, and kids do ask the best ones, actually. So the radio telescope, it's, it picks up signals from the edge of the universe and a little bit closer. 
that come from distant objects right out across the cosmos. And what it does is it picks up radio waves rather than visible light. So when you look through a telescope, normal telescope, you see stars and planets and whatever, and you see them with your, with your eyes, obviously. And our eyes see any colour of the rainbow, so from red to violet. But past red, there's another colour that you can't see called infrared. You've probably heard of it. And um, snakes can see that. We can't see it. And past violet, the other end of the rainbow, there's a colour that we can't see called ultraviolet, which you'll have heard of, but bees can see it. And so actually... The visible rainbow, the bit we can see, has got stuff off the edge of it. And if you go more and more to the violet end, you end up with X-rays. And if you go more and more to the red end, past past infrared, you get to microwaves, and then you get to radio waves. And so what we say is, actually, there's a whole invisible rainbow out there, and the radio telescope picks up a bit of it right off the end of the red end of the, the rainbow. And so it helps us, because we've got this invisible rainbow we can't see with our eyes, it helps us see bits of the universe that we can't see if we're only using the colours of the rainbow that we're used to. So that's what it's for. What are you searching for? Oh, gosh. The thing with this telescope is it picks up things and it finds things that it was never, ever intended to search for. And so what you find with blue sky science like this, not a pun, is that actually you discover things, um, the, the very famous unknown unknowns. So, for example, at Jodrell Bank, there's a team here who work on pulsars, which are the rotating collapsed cores of exploded stars. And they sort of send out these, because they're whizzing around they, as they spin, their north and south pole sends out these flashes of radio waves that we pick up. And they can help us test whether Einstein's theory of general relativity works or not. And nobody knew they existed. And the first time they found them in the late 60s, the, 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 the pulses from the, the, the radio waves were so regular, they called them LGM1, Little Green Man 1, because they thought they must be from a civilization. In fact, it turns out it's not civilization, it's physics. Sadly, we're still looking for aliens as well, obviously. But these, the telescope basically is discovering new things. So it observes the things that we know about, so galaxies and, and you know, black holes at the centre of galaxies, at the centre of our own galaxy. Searches for, you know, the structure of the cosmos, and the fading glow of the Big Bang, things like that. But it also discovers new things. So there's a really trendy thing, I don't really know about it because I did my physics a while ago now, fast radio bursts these amazing sort of massive explosions of radio waves that happen very, very quickly, right far out across the universe. What are they? We don't know. That's the thing about physics. It's more about what you don't know than what you do know. What's the weirdest thing you've ever picked up? I think, well, who knows, really, because one of the things about the LGM1 stuff is it's buried in the data. So we have all this data going back, you know, decades. And when new things turn up, people go have we seen that before? And then they go back and look through the data and think, oh, yeah, there was one there. Um, there, are, there are things that people talk about. You know, there's a thing called the wow plot that we didn't pick up here where there was this massive burst of something and nobody's been able to say, well, actually, that was just somebody opening the microwave in the tea room, which is why we don't have microwave in the tea room. Um, you know, so there's things that um, actually um, are puzzling. And, and you know, it, as physicists, you have to think, well, it's probably the microwave in the tea room or somebody's strimmer or, you know, something like that. Um, but you're always hoping that it isn't. There, you always hope it's aliens. There are big signs saying turn off mobile phones. What happens if uh, someone leaves theirs on? 
Yeah, so we would very much like, um, over Blue Dot, it's fine because we've got an agreement, you know, with the scientists that it's okay over the weekend. Although, good luck getting a signal this with a crowd of 3,000 people, to be honest. Kind of irony, that (laughs) There is, actually, yeah. (laughs) Self-limiting. So if you come here with your mobile phone on, the thing is that the telescope picks up these very, very faint whispers of radio waves right out far across the universe. And they're very, very, very faint, which is why you need such a big dish to pick them up. And so if you turn up with a radio uh, telephone on, it's like having a, it's a radio transmitter. So it's like putting a big noise next to a microphone and it just swamps what you're trying to pick up that's very, very delicate. And so actually it really helps us with our science if people don't come with a big foghorn in their pocket, please. <laughs> when was it built, the telescope? <laughs> so in the, in the 1950s, basically, and um, finished in 1957, and the big story with that is it was actually a bit of a white elephant completely over budget. And um, everybody had downed tools and left sight. And, um, and Bernard Lovell, who, you know, obviously was building it and was the founder of the site, said famously, we need a miracle to save us. And um, on the 4th of October 1957, Soviet Union launched the first ever satellite into space. Seems weird now, we've got so many of them whizzing around us, space junk and all that. And um, this telescope here was the only instrument in the whole of the planet that was able to track the carrier rocket that took it into space. And so everybody said, please get it working. So everyone rushed back on site and got it working. And the first thing it did was track the carrier rocket for Sputnik. And why is that important? Well, well, our whole civilization at the moment works on mobile connection. And, and going forward, it's going to be even more con- connectivity is just, you know, where it's at. And that depends on space. So we can't do it without the satellites in space. You can't watch the football. You can't, you know, talk to your mate round over the horizon. Because let's face it, this is the thing. Light and radio waves travel in space lines, so you, straight lines. So you need something to bounce it off to get round the world. And so the whole connectivity of the planet depends on space. So actually being able to track something that goes into space or to look at how space is working past that is really, really important. Isn't there a story that it detected the moon landing before NASA? (laughs) Not quite. So long story short, there was a real race between the Soviet Union and the USA to get to the moon um, in the 50s and 60s. And the the Soviet Union was actually winning. It was doing better than the, the USA. And they had a, a program of, you know, sending satellites and landing things on the moon. And they got there before the Americans did. But they didn't put a person on the moon. And so the very first picture that came back from the moon was from a, um, a Soviet spaceship called Luna 9. And uh, basically, Jodrabank hacked into the signal that they beamed back and got it on the front page of the newspapers before even anyone had got up in the Soviet Union. <laughs> so we've just seen the letters of Bernard Lovell, you know, because they had scientific collaboration even throughout the Cold War going, oh, I'm really sorry, I have no idea how that happened. And it's going, yeah, yeah, you do, because <laughs> you had all the journalists here. <laughs> so, yeah, and then when the, well, in 1969, when the Apollo 11 moon landing happened, um, we tracked the eagle lander down onto the moon and so in our new gallery actually we've got this fantastic space dome and in it we talk about you know how we tracked 
um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin down onto the surface of the moon. At the same time, exactly the same time, another one of our telescopes on site was tracking a Soviet ship that crash-landed on the other side of the moon. So it was actually as near as that, you know, that actually they were both, both sent ships, ships at the same time. The USA one had people in it, but the Soviet Union were also still sending craft up there. Does it blow your mind working here? Yeah. <laughs> it's completely... Even your huge mind. <laughs> well, I don't know about huge. It's just permanently blown, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Blue dot. Yes. How did that happen? Oh, so that's one. That's another one of those jodrell things, really. So when we opened the place, we're sitting outside the cafe in our, our original Planet Pavilion at the minute. We opened that in 2011. And that year, that summer, which is a bit of a busy year... We started doing the transmission events with um, our great colleagues at From the Fields and um, Engine Number Four. Then I called, you know, we sort of had a collaboration going, and we did a few little science talks and stuff. And it was kind of, oh, that seemed to work. And so then we did it again, and then we did it again. We had a bit of a break, and then we realised that actually the thing with doing. Um, you know, the one-night music events, which we did, was you've got to get everybody in and then everybody out on, on the same day. And they all arrive at the same time. They all want to go to the toilet at the same time. They all want a burger at the same time. And it's just really pressured. And actually, the thing to do, probably, to even it all out, is to have a camping festival where everybody just comes in, settles in, chills out, and then it all just kind of relaxes. And so we, um, you know, went back to our team and said, OK... As I'd been, obviously, it's a bit weird for a university to host a festival. But, um, you know, I went and talked to the university and said, let's give it a go. And then we talked to our team and said, what do you think? And together we sort of put it put it together and, and said, OK, let's have a go. And so in 2016 we had the first camping Blue Dot Festival. Um, and, you know, the rest is history. Who played that first year? Oh, God, who played that first year? I can't remember. <laughs> Forget that question. Um, of the one nights, which bands have you loved most? Oh God, that's a hard one because they're all really different, you know. I mean, Elbow was amazing and very wet, and the next day we had to cancel Paul Weller, so that was kind of spectacular and fantastic and slightly nerve-wracking. The Hallier were amazing, you know. Sigaros, out of this world, really sort of quite. Um, Oh, just such a weird thing to put next to the telescope with their laser show and their light show and things. So, you know, they're, they're all really different. And, and I find it, it's like apples and oranges. You know, it's quite hard to say that was my favourite, really. It's a, it, it's just such a kind of... It, it's such a unique experience each time it happens. The festival itself, as you said, started 2016. What do you remember about that first year and the build-up to the festival weekend? So I remember being terrified that it wasn't going to work. <laughs> And, um, you know, it's great to work with people who are so practised at doing festivals because, you know, we don't we don't do the production. So having that team with us as we went, you know, hurtling towards it. And it's just such an amazing thing to be part of when, you know, you're just a little physicist, really. And because, you know, they build a whole town here and there's water and there's generators and there's refuse collection, fire marshals and first aids and all of that infrastructure is just quite an amazing thing to see and then it's like you know when everyone turns up it's like the swan paddling under the water actually everybody experiences this fantastic festival but the work that's gone into it you know actually to see that it's quite a privilege actually and see you know the great teams that put everything together so it was absolutely 
Amazing, really. Brian Cox was here in that first year of 2016. He was, yeah. Yeah, so he came with the BBC. It's quite hard to get Brian because he's very busy, but the BBC came to do um, Infinite Monkey Cage, so that was absolutely fantastic to have him, you know, sort of. It, it, it's it's great to see Brian. He's very, very busy, so he, he doesn't work here on a day-to-day basis, but to have him, you know, come and sort of for the launch, it's it's a great thing. He must be an old friend of yours, surely, yeah? Well, we, well ships that pass in the night. We do know Brian. He's, he's, a, he's, he's a colleague in the Department of Physics, mostly with Tim. Actually, Tim's more likely to see him than me on a day-to-day basis in Manchester. But, yeah, we've known him, you know, for years, actually. And, in fact, we had... Um, uh, BBC here with Stargazing Live in 2010-11 you know um, just as we were building the building was sitting outside actually so Brian and and that team were here for a few years over that period yeah it's good What about music acts since the festival itself started? Yeah so I mean that's always breathtaking you know I mean I think and having said I haven't got a favourite Kraftwerk were a highlight that was just amazing I mean I'm kind of a fan of that so you know just yeah. to have them in the house as it were I was here for that <laughs> it was it was just incredible wasn't spectacular. it spectacular and then afterwards there was one of these spooky jodrell moments where we all piled into the mission control tent which is our big science tent and Tim with you know he'd been in email contact with us and um, bounced some craft work off the moon and then picked it up again. And Kraftwerk were in the front row, and it's like, how surreal is this? Only at Jodrell Bank, you know, it's just such a weird thing to happen. And just like, well, one of the things we talk about is, you know, this crossover between music and art and science and culture and all those sorts of things. And then you're just sitting in that tent thinking, well, there aren't any boundaries. This is where it's at, sort of thing. Bouncing off the moon. What does it do and what happens? So, so we got some of Kraftwerk's music, and we'd kind of work with them on which bits. Um, and we played it into a microphone in the mission control tent, which is our 2,000, 3,000-seater science stage, put it down the line to a transmitter in Holland, because actually you can't transmit from this site. That's where you have to switch your phone off. So we sent it to our colleagues at the observatory in Holland who have a transmitter. So they, they were on Zoom. Now, Tim wired all this up, and, you know, there was cables all over the place in the observatory. But anyway, and then they transmitted it at the moon. The moon's got to be in the right place. So, you know, we'd moved the moon on purpose. Not really. We'd worked out where the moon was. They transmitted it to the moon using a big transmitter. And basically the radio waves hit the moon's surface and bounce off because that's what's happening. And then we picked up the reflection with the Lovell telescope a big dish, because you need a big dish to do that. The signal went from the Lovell telescope into our supercomputers and then via all these cables that Tim had running down all the flipping corridors into the tent at Mission Control and played over the speakers. So it's a bit circuitous. <laughs> but actually, we played Kraftwerk, bounced it off the moon, and then it came back to the audience. And the thing with bouncing stuff off the moon... It's one and a quarter light seconds to the moon. Did you know that? No, of course so it I take, didn't know. <laughs> So it takes like one and a quarter seconds to get to the moon. So it's one and a quarter light seconds to get to the moon and back it's twice that, which is two and a half seconds. So it, there's a bit of a delay. So you play it and then you've, there's a bit of jeopardy. Is it going to work? Is it going to work? And then you hear it come back. So it's kind of that, is it going to work? Is it going to work? Hooray! Yes, it worked. So, Does it sound the same? No, it's really distorted. You might imagine... You know, you'll know having a microphone and knowing how things work, how how hard it is to get things to work properly with sound. 
And that is one hell of a route to get anything very, very... What does it prove? It doesn't prove anything. It's a, it's a work of art. Is it like science fun? It's science fun, yeah. Well, most of science is fun, you say. Now, people don't realise this. It's actually it's quite an interesting thing to do. And like anything, you know, it takes a bit of grit, it takes a bit of mundanity, you know, it's a bit boring at times, etc. But it just has those moments that are really interesting. Do you think there's an obvious crossover between science and music? Oh, yeah. I mean, look at the tech we all use. I, I, one of those things is I tend not to kind of, you know, pull rank and you know, go behind the stage too much during the festival because I don't want to get in people's way. But I did do admit, with Kraftwerk, I did sit around the back of the sound desk and actually that was as awe-inspiring almost as the the performance because the kit that those guys have and the tech and the people who are so good at what they do, you know, get, actually making that experience for people who, who don't see the underpinning of it all was just really impressive. Yeah, because it was a spectacular show. Yeah. But the guys don't do a lot, do they? So it's reliance, the sound and the visuals have to go together, don't they, to make it spectacular. Yeah, and I think, you know, they do a lot of it beforehand and they yeah. work with their teams, you know, beforehand. And a lot of performances about that these days. And if you, if you haven't got someone standing up there, you know, all acoustic and unamplified, there is a lot of prep goes into things to make them happen. And they're a really good example of it, really. I mean, you know, I'm, one, of my, one of the bits of my job is to try and encourage people to go into science and, you know, engineering and all the rest of it. And actually, what better ad for, for that is, you know, than craft work at, at Jodrell Bank. It's absolutely fantastic, you know, to have that... As a, as a sort of, um, I mean, you know, with any job, it's, it sometimes gets a little bit boring, but moments like that just really, really recharge my batteries. In terms <laughs> of that crossover between the science and the music then, let's say that's a given, that there is one. Yeah. What was the vision for Blue Dot and what remains the vision? Yeah, so I, th- I think, you know, one of the things that I do and, you know, Tim does and, and a lot of people do here is we're interested in new ways of thinking about how we, and, and, you know, I'm going to get all philosophical now, how we solve the big problems in, you know, facing us in the future. And and that's why, you know, with Ben and everybody, we came up with the idea of calling it Blue Dot, because that's um, a, a name that came from a really, well, a bit ancient um, thing by a, a scientist called Carl Sagan, who talked about how the Earth is like a tiny little speck tiny little blue dot in the vastness of the universe and actually you know the planet's struggling a bit and we all know there's loads of challenges at the moment and we need all we need everybody involved to um not only solve the big problems facing the planet but also to work out you know how we collaborate as human beings and stuff and so we've got this kind of lofty vision (laughs) of us all kind of working together for the good of the planet and the good of people and and the thing that we do our bit of it here is actually you know, science isn't just in the lab, science isn't just for the scientists, science is for everybody. And, you know, the fact that we've got phones and microphones and electric cars and all that stuff is such a part of life now. And and I think, you know, people just need to feel they've got a bit more of a grasp of it. And it's actually for us, not for... It's not like, you know, something people are imposing on us. We all do use science all the time and, and you know, it's it's good to have a grip of it. Ben that you mentioned is a fellow director of the festival, Ben Robinson. It must help for you that he is a science nerd. (laughs) He's fascinated by science, isn't he? And comes with, as well as music expertise, he knows how to put on a festival. 
What's it going to be like this year? So, um, honestly, I'm just amazed that we're back. It just feels like it's a really new start, I think. And just to have this fantastic lineup. So we've got, you know, the music is amazing. I'm really looking forward to the Thursday evening when we've got um, Hannah Peel and the Power Orchestra because I've just been, a, I think, going to fangirl them all because I've just been a fan of both of them for ages. And then, you know, Björk on the Sunday, that is just mega. And then, you know, in the middle of all that, Tim Peake, we've got an astronaut. And I've been trying to get Tim to come back. Tim's been here a few times over the years. Um, but we've, we've been trying to get him to the festival for absolutely ages. And we had him lined up for 2020, damn it. And he's very um, kindly rolled over his booking. So we've got him coming this year as well. So, so you know, we've got this kind of really fantastic programme. But just it's going to be so brilliant to see everybody back. Tell me about the way that the site here transforms. So, as uh, I said at the start, we're in the shadow of the telescope. Does anyone actually play right underneath the telescope? No, no, because actually that's, you know, that's a big engineering thing. And it's, it moves and, you know, if people are working on it, which they are today, you know, spanners might fall off it and what have you. So there's a, there's a compound around it that nobody's allowed into for health and safety reasons. But what we do is we basically take over all of the fields around here and we use them for various things like the car park and the campsite. And then the field over to what is my right here, and I'm pointing, um, uh, is the the main um, field where we have the big main stage, the Lovell stage. Um, And then, you know, we actually wrap around the Lovell telescope and we've got the big science stage, mission control um, over kind of to my left, as it were, on the other side of the telescope. And in between, you know, all the other things um, that we put on all the other stages, behind me, and I'm pointing behind me now, um, we've got our gardens, and in there we've got sort of art installations and, and absolutely along all the routes, you know, all the lovely bars and the concessions and things. And the best thing is the science fair, because nobody else has got a science fair. I was... was Watching Glastonbury today, putting on, you know, a bit of science and thinking, ha, I wonder where they got that idea from. But actually, you know, what we do here, because we've got like this massive research intensive university behind us, is we've got just a massive science, loads of hands-on things. We've got a bit of the moon. The moon's coming. We've got, <laughs> yeah, we've got some moon rock from the actual moon is coming. Uh, we've got, um, I don't know, do you remember that um, meteorite that landed on somebody's driveway a little while back? We've got a bit of that coming so people can look at that. We've got British Antarctic Survey come in and they are bringing an ancient ice core, which is very interesting. So, you know, when you drill down through the ice, the ice is laid down over hundreds and thousands of years. And the further down you go, the further back in time you go. And the ice has got air bubbles in from, I think this one's got sort of 3,000-year-old air bubbles in, so it's got its own special freezer. So they're bringing that. And we're going to do a live link-up to their overwintering team because it was summer here, but in the Antarctic it's winter. They're not going to see sunshine for months now. They're in the dark. And the team this year is largely female. So we're going to do a live link-up to them from the main stage. Absolutely fantastic. How did the telescope end up being here in the Cheshire countryside in the first place? Why was it here? By accident. Or was it This really? is a good story, yeah. So th- this is how science happens. And actually, Bernard Lovell, who founded the place, wrote a story about himself, wrote a story of his life, and he called it Astronomer by Chance, Astronomer by Accident. So um, he, he came back from the war where he'd been working on radar and thought he would um, use radar to look for cosmic rays. So he said, 
Um, he got some old radar kit in Manchester and then the, the spark from the trams interfered like mobile phones do these days. And so he said, can I take my kit somewhere? And they said, you can go to Jodra Bank, you can stay for two weeks. And here we are. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever connected with the ISS? We haven't. We sometimes say, shall we do it? And then we get so far with it. And then it's it's a bit of a palaver because, you know, they have to be in the right bit of the sky and you've got to, you know, have an astronaut up there from your country usually. So next time Tim Peake goes back up, we'll book, we'll book him to talk to us. I have two more questions for you. One is, and I can't let you go without asking you this. Uh-huh. Are there UFOs out there? Well, if I told you, I'd have to shoot you. Mm. <laughs> Are there? That's my I answer. I think it's worth my sacrifice. <laughs> Not so far, sadly. We are looking, though. Seriously. Is that it? <laughs> That's it. Well, we haven't found anything. I think, you know, we used to say you'd be the first to know or we'd have to tell the government or what have you. But honestly, these days, if they found anything, it'd be on Twitter before anybody knew anything <laughs> else. So, so far, nobody's found them. How realistic is it, though, whether you will or won't? So I would say it's almost certain that there's life out there in the universe. And I would say I don't think there's a scientist would disagree with me. What would it be? I have no idea. Your guess is as good as What's mine. In, no, it's not. It's <laughs> it absolutely is. not. No, absolutely What is, is in your head when you think of a UFO and what life might be out there? Oh, God. Well, the thing is, what film have I been watching? Or what book? I've just been reading the Rosewater Trilogy by Teddy Thompson. And there's just like this fantastic thing about set in Nigeria. And there's this alien thing that's put xenoph forms in the atmosphere and connected with everybody's brains it's like oh my god it could be that and then you watch arrival and you think oh my god it could be that well then you watch star trek and think you know it's life jim but not as we know it it's just it's not as we know it let's see finally Teresa, what's your vision for blue dot in the future well i think this is such a spectacular place and it's special you know people have a real sense of how special this place is and i think you know we're looking to have absolutely more fun, more more brilliant weekends, and also think about you know how we can build on the Blue Dot community, which is a fantastic group of people, to think about things like climate change and you know how we do things greener and better, and you know everybody. It's really funny at Blue Dot. One of the things that was really weird about 2019 is talking to the guy who does the pies. He said Blue Dot's weird. He said, at every other festival, I sell loads of meat pies and loads of chicken pies. And at Blue Dot, I just sell out vegan pies. What's going on? (laughs) Teresa, the next time we're here together, there'll be tens of thousands of people here too. (laughs) Thank you so much, Professor Teresa Anderson. You've been listening to the Blue Dot podcast. Day and weekend tickets are on sale now. Explore the weekend at discoverthebluedot.com. Listener.